Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So, uh, congratulations. It's a very, it is your funniest book. Good. Um, yeah. But it's, it's funny in, 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 in the good sense, but it's also funny that you did it. Uh, <laughs> so I think the first thing I have to ask is for you to account for, your, to, for yourself and this decision to, to write a book about uh, a movie that very few Americans are sure of what it is when they hear the title. Yeah, uh, I guess that's, I mean, that's something we can come on to, the difference in the status of the film in um, uh, America and Britain. But for me, I mean, it's my second book about uh, about a film. Uh, the first one was about Andrei Tarkovsky's film Stalker, although I did a broadcast, uh, podcast with somebody today who said, yeah, your earlier book was about the film Slasher. <laughs> um, which, uh, anyway, so, and of course... Stalker, as many of you know, is, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's the Everest of, of art cinema, and it's a test of your endurance and discernment or, uh, as, a, as a sort of cinema goer. Can you survive in that thin air, you know, that makes such demands on the, on the viewer? And so to be the viewer who actually wrote a whole book about it is, is like to be the one who ascended Everest without it. Oxygen tank. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm the the Reinhold Messner, whatever his name is, um, and uh, that one. That's a film that really had meant so much to me. And uh, after writing the book, it can sometimes happen that I mean, I had a friend who was writing a biography of Margaret Dürer, which she never finished because she just came to hate Margaret Dürer so much. And certainly, writing a book about anything, you can you really you know, you really get to know to know what you think of it. And for me, having written this book about Stalker, my high opinion of it was raised still further. I think it's not just one of the greatest films ever made, but one of the greatest artworks of any kind. Anyway, so that was it. I was people would always ask me, Did you know, did you think about doing any other film? And I said, No, you know. And I meant it. But always in the back of my mind was the fact there was another film which sort of meant as much to me and it was this film, which I first saw when I was 10 in 1969. Very important difference is that I've seen Stalker loads and loads of times, but always at the cinema. And I'd say to people, you can't, you know, uh, you can't watch it on your computer. You've got to see it on the big screen because the zone where it takes place. What is the zone? Well, the zone is, it's the wonder of cinematic space. Where Eagles Dare I first saw at the cinema when I was 10, and I've seen it loads of times since then uh, on TV. It's on TV in England the whole time, often only bits of it, often drunk when I got home from the pub. So it's been a very, I mean, it couldn't be, you know, more different. And I like the kind of, I like the kind of joke of that, really, of going from, you know, this uh, um, very, very serious film to a, a film that is regarded as, as a bit of a, bit of a, uh, it's just a, sort of stupid action film in, in many ways, but it does contain to me, as Stalker does, some, some essence of, of cinema, I think. Well, so it seems one of the things about this, but I mean, I, I have this nice edition that's like a fake old <laughs> penguin, yeah. which I think is a great fetish object, but it seems there's some kind of Englishness that's very 
uh, basic to this project, yeah. which actually isn't so typical of, of your work overall, but mm -hmm. it made me think of um, your book about the First World War, uh, the missing of, of Somme. The Somme. The Somme, yeah. yeah. And um, so it made me think that inside the, the sort of uh, japery of this, maybe there was some kind of uh, encoded um, question about, um, or, or feeling, uh, maybe uh, like in your body almost, an emotion about being a boy and thinking about English war trauma. Because this is kind of a book about Englishmen uh, taking their revenge on Nazis. Yeah, well, Englishmen and one one American, and Clint one Eastwood. American, yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you're right. It's it's really. I mean, this thing of the yeah, uh, wh where to start? I mean, yeah, I was born in 1958, which means my childhood was just so drenched in the in the Second World War. But behind all that, there was the First World War, and um, you know, I can remember so clearly when I was uh, when I was a kid. Uh, my f when I went round to my friend Gary Hunt's house, his grandfather was there, and he, his grandfather would always dro drop his trousers. Always, always. Um, not uh, for any reason other than to show us his shrapnel wounds from the First World War. Um, you know, he was about 70 then. And the First World War, if you grew up in Britain, it's all around, both in terms of that living connection with it, you know, and also the memorials are everywhere, but it exists entirely in the, in the realm of memory, really. Okay, the Second World War, which completely dominated my childhood, but that was in the realm of culture, really, of comics, um, uh, um, toys, you know, those little uh, soldiers, uh, the model planes, they were Airfix models, we called them, maybe they had a different brand name here, or maybe Airfix was, like everything else, an American company, I don't know. I, I think I recognize the name, but yeah. I, I'm not, I can't say. Um, and then films, and so, you know, I did this event with David Thompson the other night, who really hates this film, Where Eagles Dare, because he's significantly older than me, he was born in 1945, so the real war, the grim reality of the war, he was sort of born into its aftermath. But for me, really, you know, my version of the Second World War, as represented in these films and stuff, of which Where Eagles Dare is the, the climax, I mean, um, as the 60s went on, the films took on more and more of a kind of, uh, the, they were more and more about these missions, these kind of, you know, a handful of, of picked troops. And the thing is that really, I mean, the, the Second World War for me, in terms of my historical understanding, it meant us and the Americans versus the Germans and the Japanese. Um, it had, Stalingrad didn't exist. It had nothing to do with the Holocaust. You know, we only learned about these things much later in the 70s. So the Second World War really was, for me as a kid, never more so than when watching those prisoner of war films where it, those German prisoner of war camps looked so much fun. I mean, they looked so much fun, you wondered why they wanted to escape from them. It was, yeah, the Second World War was a load of fun. And in a way, this film was the, you know, no film made the Second World War look like more fun than, than this. Um, and I should say that, you know, um, uh, I'm not alone in feeling, in having this great attachment to the, uh, to, to this film. The film is just so imprinted in the consciousness of every, <clears throat> every, uh, every boy of my age, I would say, to the extent that when we were having the publicity meeting in 
Britain for this. <clears throat> you know, they know, they know I live in California, so they know I'm used now to that nice positive sort of thing. And they're all very positive about it. But then this young woman uh, said rather cruelly, she said, yeah, but is anyone going to buy this book apart from men over 50? <laughs> and, you know, it was a, ter a terrible pall fell upon this otherwise quite jolly meeting as I realized, well, no. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, that rightly despised demographic, uh, there's a lot of us, and I mean, just as a way of illustrating how, how imprinted in the consciousness it is, during the phone hacking cover-up, uh, the News International, they, they, they conveyed the news that they'd um, uh, successfully destroyed some of the evidence by saying, you know, texting each other broadsword calling Danny Boy, you know. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's just really part of being being English, this film. So, um, I, you know, I've, I've done the same thing. I wrote one, uh, one short book about a film. Yeah. And so I, I'm interested in the, some of the formal problems of the compositional method. Can you talk about, uh, I mean, I, I had uh, They Live on, on my computer and I would watch snippets of it over and over and over again and just run it constantly. I also subjected everyone I knew to screenings because I wanted to feel other people's reactions. So I would oh, sit people ah. down. I think, Ariel, I made you watch it with me once, right? And, um, <laughs> and, and, and sort of narrate, you know, as rehearsing. Because there's a way in which this is a... Uh, I think one of one of the reviewers said this that your book was like a a written director's commentary, though not by the director. Uh, yes, yeah, and that, you yeah. know it is almost frame by frame, or it feels mm. that way. Uh, Yours isn't quite as frame by framey, though. Is well, it? I I did take that same approach, uh, mm. although I inserted other kinds of uh, voice into it. Yours is very pure, which I which I'm interested in too, because mm. you've kind of excluded yourself from the from the book in a way. Yeah, apart from a few little, well, yeah, there's... But it's mostly in the footnotes and the note at the right. end that, yeah. you, that you allow your own presence into the book, which is not your usual procedure. Usually you get between the reader and, you know, D.H. Lawrence or the jazz or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's true, I think. And also, well, if we go back again to the Stalker book, which is where I, you know, developed this way of doing it. So what I do is I just summarize the film. Um, yeah, uh, perhaps not frame by frame, but certainly <laughs> shot by shot. And it seemed to me that in the case of the Stalker book, <clears throat> you do that, then it becomes appropriate to go into these sort of personal digressions because, as you know with Stalker, it starts off with this very literal journey, three guys going into the zone at the heart of which is the room where your deepest wish will come true. And then their physical movement through the zone becomes increasingly impeded by metaphysical uh, uh, digressions and also they find that although they're only a hundred yards from the house they have to take a very elaborate route so in order to remain faithful to the film to stick close to it it was sort of necessary for me to digress and talk about my, what my own deepest wishes uh, uh, were actually I should say it's not deepest wishes plural it's deepest, w deepest wish singular the thing that defines you as what you are anyway um, this, of course, Where Eagles Dare, it doesn't really lend itself to, uh, shall we say, metaphysical speculation or that kind of digression. Um, what it does lend itself to, with all its plots and turns, is just sort of um, me just sort of, hang, you know, hanging on by my, uh, you know, hanging on to the cable car, I think, like that. So, yeah, sticking very, very close to it. And also, I mean, I think um, the... You, 
this links in with your initial question, why were eagles dare after stalker? I think stylistically, that's one of the things that I tend to do. I'll make a serious point, then undercut it with a, with a kind of joke, and then serious point again, and then, you know. So I like the way serious stalker, uh, not serious where eagles dare. But yeah, so the tone, the tone of it, even though I really think it is a, there's a bit where I say, you know, it's, it's not just that I would rather watch um, uh, Where Eagles Dare than Vim Vendors Till the End of the World. I really believe Where Eagles Dare is a better film than Till the End of the World. What's your opinion of that film, by I, the way? I like the soundtrack to the Right, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good soundtrack. You know, um, um, so, so this is, uh, I'm still interested in, in um, in getting you to account a little bit for the procedure of writing, like mm. with the film, the physical presence of the film, how did you, how did you oh, yeah. uh, carry this mm. action through? I mean, as a literal um, procedure. Yeah, I think a little bit like you, but not at first, in that in both books, uh, I relied on my memory of it. And that seemed really fine with Stalker, because as you know, the zone is reconfiguring itself all the time according to what uh, people think of it. It's not a fixed objective thing. And then, of course, I didn't want the book to become ludicrously wide of the mark, so then I watched bits of the film again to make sure I wasn't uh, making a claim about the film that just wasn't accurate. With this one, I, I stuck much more closely to it and began um, watching bits of it much earlier in, in, in the process. But the key thing about it really is, I mean, um, it was the, um, unlike you, because you're, you're so, such a big part of your, um, uh, your sort of writerly identity is, um, you know, invested in the novel. I mean, you can do that thing which you can even think up plots, can't you? <laughs> it's, uh, you can, I mean, you know. <clears throat> um, Every three years I can <laughs> pick up one and that's all it takes. And I've never been able to think of plots. So the thing is, here's this, film with this fantastically complex, uh, not entirely plausible plot. So all of that work is being done for me by the, by the thing that I'm commenting on. And that, I think, just really freed me stylistically. So really, the, 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 the film becomes just a sort of, it's just a, an excuse for some sort of stylistic sort of uh, showing off. So it's like a novelization of... of, of uh, where Eagles Dare, done by someone who's uh, uh, too, too amused to stick to the job. <laughs> well, that's right, although the novelization of Where Eagles Dare had already been done uh. by Alistair MacLean in that uh, it wasn't, unlike Gun Guns of Navarone, a film adopted, adapted from his novel. Oh, he didn't start, it didn't start with a novel. No, it started yeah. with a, a screenplay. Elliot Kastner said, you know, would you like to write a screenplay? And he wrote this screenplay. And then <clears throat> wrote the, you know, wrote a novelization of it. So mine is, um, so God, in this kind of thing, so it's, he did the novelization and I'm doing the, whatever it is, anyway. But yeah. So this reminds me, I, I wanted to ask you about Alistair McLean because there's a secret writerly yeah. uh, uh, source hiding behind your energies in, in, you know, in writing this because you read him devotedly at one point, but he doesn't, uh, the film holds up for you and he doesn't. That's right. But, I mean, Alistair MacLean is a, uh, a, a, fa uh, a foundational influence for you, too, isn't he? 
I don't know if I would say that. I read, I read, <laughs> I read three or four of them, oh, but I think he's, it's very, it's very English. No, I certainly didn't read them all. The That's way, the so way you out did. of character with you, Jonathan, <laughs> the ultimate completist, I think of you as. Yeah, I failed on this. Uh, on this one. And but what, what sort of age were you when you were doing this uh, rather cursory working through of the, the McLean? Thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, that's yeah. the age. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I started yeah. with Ice Station Zebra, which was which. I mean, I liked Arctic stories, and I, I think I wanted him to be more of a science fiction writer than he was. Huh, that is his most science yeah. fictiony uh, book. Yeah, great title too, yeah, isn't it? Is. it? Yeah. yeah. So yes, we were reading him. I guess everybody reads him at the same age, and you and I, you know, he was huge. Not everybody, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> you do not have a group of people nodding along with you in this audience right now. Well, maybe that yeah. was. Uh, but I mean, what the surprising thing is that I mean, he was a big, whopping, great-selling author, and he can't have his reading kind of uh, base can't have existed entirely of thirteen or fourteen-year-olds. But it's hard to believe anyone over the age of 15 could derive any pleasure from it. Because when I reread Where Eagles, when I started to reread Where Eagles Dex, I had this lovely idea that at the end of the book, I was going to have a very a chapter called Alistair MacLean, colon, a critical reappraisal. And I thought this would be, you know, fun. <laughs> and then, of course, you start reading it, and it's just unreadably, t it's so terrible. But, I mean, he was really able to uh, come up with some plots. And although it's... <laughs> Sort of <laughs> not like me, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, and I, I I got the hint there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, and so that and that. I mean, the it really is. I mean, it's you know you can you can plot holes in it, but it, you can you can sort of spot holes in the plots. But it's a really quite ingenious uh, series of of, of of turnarounds that uh, that takes place in in the film. So one thing. Uh, that you don't do is put the film in the context of the uh, the director's yeah. body of work, mm. and his name barely comes into it. Brian G. Hutton, and I wondered if I mean how in you know I mean I think in a loose way you probably are an a tourist, mm. uh, but here this is an artifact that's kind of lacking in an auteur. It's almost as if you yeah. offered yourself as it's you know McLean is insufficient. Hutton goes unmentioned. It says, if you're the new director of, oh, of like what's, what's yeah. interesting about uh, Where Eagles Deer. But, I mean, did you, did you think about Oh yeah, It's so mean, different from the Tarkovsky situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, t you know, um, one of the joys of doing the Tarkovsky book was to, uh, by watching it, to find out how some of the magical effects are, are achieved. You know, how does the zone become this sentient thing? And there are certain shot sequences where it, you can work out how, how it's done. I mean, um, I mean, I don't want to go into it now, but the incredible thing really is that even when you see how the trick has been done, and this is not the case with, say, magicians, the magic is still intact. Now, of course, Brian G. Uh, Hutton is not a name to be spoken of in the same breath as Werner Herzog or, you know, Antonioni or something like that, although he is enjoying a bit of a revival at the moment on the basis of... Anyone know? Oh, Eve Babbitts, because Eve Babbitts had a long-standing uh, affair with with him. So he's, uh, yeah, he comes up quite a lot in that uh, um, Lily Analik book uh, uh, about e Eve Babbitts. He doesn't come out of it quite as well as Harrison Ford, 
who emerges from it uh, as a truly awesome figure. This, do you, do you remember? Yeah. yeah, God, the Harrison <laughs> nine times a night Ford. <laughs> that's a that's a thing to give uh, to give us all pause, isn't, isn't it? Um, yeah, but he really. I mean, on the other hand, um, you know, I th one of the things that I most like in film. I mean, it, yeah, let's go back to this. Isn't it striking the way that? You know, we, we read book, we get sent books, and quite often we give up on them after a couple of pages. You know, um, with films though, a film can reveal its crapness in about, I would say, 30 seconds. Don't you, don't you think, Jonathan? Um, and what it, what is so, do you think, or do you yes, think even less? Seems, 10 seconds, good, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and one of the things. Yeah, you know what kind of world you're in. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, uh, and um, one of the things that strikes me is that Quite often, you'll see a film and you realise really early on, oh God, the person has got no rhythm. I mean, and that's the key thing. And although there aren't any really elaborate shots like the amazing, you know, through the window, round the corner, round the house, back in again that you get at the end of the passenger, say, there's none of those visual, those cinematographic pyrotechnics. But, I mean, it's a really smooth bit of filmmaking and a testament to its rhythmic power, I think, is that once I start watching it, I w I'll think, okay, I'm going to watch it until they parachute out of the planes. Partly because I just always love anything with, uh, with parachutes jumping <laughs> in it. But I can never find the moment to stop. It has this, you know, great rhythmic propulsion, I think. And that is something that you don't get in just a, a work-a-day sort of, uh, you know, work-a-day hack, hack director. So I, I think it is an impressive but invisible bit of, uh, of, of directing. And perhaps the most impressive thing about it is precisely the way that he doesn't feel the need to impart any kind of, uh, you know, uh, authorial stamp on it, but lets, you know, the actors and the, the story uh, do the work. So, um, you know, one of your... I mean, okay, so you're kind of a famously a generalist. You do different things, and you make a kind of sport of uh, digression, you know, in the microcosm within within your uh, microcosm of a book, but also the macrocosm of your career. You're but we're very similar. Doing like, like yeah, that, I guess right? so. Yeah, yeah unexpected I mean, geez, yeah. decisions. But there's uh, if there is a, a a through line, you write about photography with enormous devotion. I mean, there's several books of, 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 of uh, writing about photography, and you've written uh, essays for monographs. I mean, there's a, the Gary Winogrand book. I don't know if they've got it here. Oh, they have, yeah. It's uh, up there. It's only six, it's actually a snip at $65, isn't it? There you go. Yeah. Selling, selling, so selling, beautiful. Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> do, do that work. So um, uh, do you look at, I mean, I, I think that the, I'm, sh I'm confident that the Tarkovsky book is a book that in a way is a book about photography that you're interested in film's uh, aspect of being a kind of a, a, a photographic, hmm. uh, you know, photograph in time. But I don't know whether you look at uh, uh, Where Eagles Dare. Well, Where Eagles Dare, I think actually, I mean, Where Eagles Dare, it's the experience of Where Eagles Dare, I think. And what I'm trying to do is be faithful to that experience, which is why I think this thing of tone is so important because mm -hmm. You know, I mean, God, academics are capable of anything. Um, you could presumably write some, you know, semi, you know, some discursive thing, you know, making all sorts of claims for it, but it really wouldn't be inappropriate. It really wouldn't be appropriate. It seemed to me as, you know, you could, 
it was only the only way to write about this film was was to do so very very uh, very very lightly. Um, but um, yeah, it's a it's a thoroughly immersive. It's it's it's, it's one of the sort of films that really uh, define for me what's what cinema is. I really in, insist on that, and I think maybe it's it's an age thing as well because of you know. Uh, Obviously, there's loads of action, but it's it's a pre-CGI film, and I think I mean I wonder what you think. I think somebody of people of our generation, we are just so resistant to CGI. In-camera effects are 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 much more exciting, but yeah. but uh, but then there's also the in a way the equivalent deflation of when you see bad rear projection work, and there are yeah. there are sequences in rear projection that. Uh, I don't know if they break the spell, but they they put mm -hmm. you in that. I mean, the same way Hitch, certain Hitchcock films force you into that. Uh, I, yeah, I struggle with the back projection in Hitchcock. There's a few clumsy bits of back projection in Where Eagles Dare, but the key thing is that um, you know it was jokingly referred to as where stunt doubles dare because uh, you know I think actually it's uh, the main stunt man Alf Joint is his name. You know the stunt men actually spent more time in front of the camera than Richard Burton, who was so chronically drunk during, uh, during filming that when he went to the premiere, he said, God, I've got no memory of it, but actually it was pretty good. You know? um, and I think the, one of the things is, whereas CG, the first thing CGI always does away with is gravity, uh, whereas gravity is a major force in, in Where Eagles Dare, isn't it? And a lot of you feel, I think one of the reasons the action sequences are convincing is because you know, people really are doing, you know, quite, quite dangerous things. So I'm, in a moment, I think I'll invite yeah. people to ask you questions or, or, I don't know, ask us questions if you've got one for me. But um, while, while you think of that, I want to make you um, account a little bit for your, uh, well, for the presence of Clint Eastwood in the film. And, and the, way, oh, yeah. the way you write about his acting rhythms, I think, is uh, yeah. extraordinarily sensitive. Does, it, does, does your interest in him in, within this film extend beyond... Uh, beyond to other Eastwood films? Uh, it, well, God, I mean, I, I, I'm so worried here. I, you know, I don't want to get deported, but no, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm certainly, I'm not at all a fan of Eastwood as a director. I think he's a really plodding director with the, maybe the exception of uh, American Sniper. But most of the time I find him a real plodder. Um, as an actor, oh, I mean, he's incredibly limited. I have a fondness for, uh, um, uh, for Dirty Harry, but as um, as David Thompson, so let's let's make sure we come back to David Thompson mm -hmm. later on. Um, you know, as David Thompson says, the great thing about Dirty Harry is his tweed jacket. I love the way he says that, rather than his you know the big magnum or whatever. But I mean, there's a. I think it's it's about the balance between uh, Eastwood and Burton. That is to say, Burton, you know, famously his. You know, what was he? He was essentially a voice, a Shakespearean actor who sort of despised these rather stupid films that he did for vast amounts of money. But that voice of his is so amazing and I find it absolutely mesmerizing. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's like when he's delivering some of these uh, uh, speeches in, in Where Eagles Dare, it's like Shakespeare uh, because of just the power of his voice. So there's a nice pairing off between him and the very nearly silent Clint Eastwood. And watching, when in a documentary about Eastwood, I remember Burton saying, yes, he has this kind of dynamic lethargy. And that's such a 
great summing up of, uh, I think, of how, uh, how, Eastwood, how Eastwood is. And again, uh, David Thompson says, you know, there's all this uh, fuss made about uh, uh, actors who can understand a character. But he says it's, you know, it's just as important how a character moves. And I feel that that panther-like way that Eastwood glides through this uh, film, inhabiting a sort of completely, existing in a completely different relation to time to, to the others, it's really, really quite something. What about you and what, Eastwood? I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty resistant to him, too. I mean, I, and I agree with you about his, his directing. But, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's very few exceptions where I think he, he sort of uh, does, does anything as an actor that, arrest my attention, but the way you describe him in here made me think about him oh. in a way I hadn't before. And, and of course, it's also, it's almost like his presence as an American in this British, uh, you know, the system of the British actors and their enmities and their masquerade, mm -hmm. and he's some sort of other uh, element that um, stands apart from them. And it's like an allegory of the, the American presence in the the war, you know. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah, and he's, he's surrounded by these kind of, you know, high British thesps, you know, so they're all, they're all coming out of Shakespeare. I yeah. can't remember who, uh, Patrick Weimark and uh, the others, you know, they're all in that, I mean, they're all, they're all, all the British actors are sounding like they're uttering lines written by Shakespeare. And then yeah. there's this kind of act, actor really entire, so they're coming out of the theatre. You know, act, uh, Eastwood is there as a, you know, genuine American movie star. And there's all sorts of, you know, I think I'd say in the book at one time that Eastwood really, when we think about his acting career, what's he done? He's just squinted, really. But there's a great bit in, you know, in Where Eagles Dare, it's set in, it's set in, they're behind enemy lines in, in Germany. And of course, so there, we have to assume that they're all speaking German. They're all fluent in German, we're told. But of course, they're speaking English. It's just a kind of convention. Uh, and then at one point, uh, when they're in the bar, uh, Burton has to go out and he says to um, uh, Eastwood, keep an eye on things. And so Eastwood is left sort of squinting at the bar. But as I sort of joke in the book, he's not just squinting, he's squinting in German, <laughs> which I think says something about his great sort of range as a... <laughs> as an actor. So um, while I, again, just cede the ground for maybe some audience questions, uh, yeah. what did you want to tell us about David Thompson and his response oh, to, to yeah, this in your that's conversation? that's right. Well, I mean, we, uh, I mean, we could do some sort of arm wrestle about who loves David <laughs> Thompson more, but it would be a tough one, wouldn't it? We'd, we'd, it would be a tie. Yeah, no, I'd come yeah. out six languages ahead. I mean, so, you know, uh, David Thompson's biographical dictionary of cinema, one of, you know, one of the epic works of literature of our, of our time. And I think it's been really important for me that uh, in the dictionary, he just barely mentions Stalker. So there was that, you know, there was, there was a bit of room left there. He doesn't, there's no entry on Brian G. Hutton in the dictionary. He, you know, he likes, uh, and he, he gives very scant attention to, to Burton. So it was really important for me, I think, that uh, there was that space, uh, space left, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then also, I'd, yeah, there, it's, I mean, it, because it's not such a serious film, it hadn't been much, much well, no, written this, about. Well, no, this suggests something really interesting. It's that it's uh, writing this kind of book maybe about uh, occupying a space that's been left yeah. empty, you know, mm -hmm. that, that you couldn't have, I mean, there may be, I don't, I'm not going to propose that there are other films that you 
love as much as these two. You've now said that they're the two on a summit, stalker and where equals dare. But, but I mean, there's a there's a remark at the end that you would, if you did it again, you'd write oh, about yeah, yeah. Um, point blank. Yeah. But there's a, there are a lot of appreciations of point blank. And so maybe the fact that you didn't actually opt to do that is because the space was. That's a very good this, point. The area was occupied. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've always told me that you'd like me to write about Bob Dylan. Yeah. And I feel there's no space there. That it's, it's, it's been filled in. Yeah, but, uh, but nobody called Jonathan Leatham has written a book about Bob Dylan. You know, that's the thing. I mean, I still feel you've got tons to say about Bob Dylan. Uh, just to go back to Point Blank, though, that is interesting because... Uh, that film occupies a huge place in uh, Thompson's consciousness in that, you know, the, the, the great moment in the dictionary, you know, when you, the moment when you first realize you're reading something extraordinary is the entry uh, under D. It says something like, uh, the author is torn between his obligation to cover everyone from Antonioni to Zanuck. Or from Thorold Dickinson. To, to Zanuck, a, very, a, very good, a yeah. Swedish director with the same name, same <laughs> yeah. last name as Angie Dickinson. That's right. Yeah, and he and says, and the simple fact that Angie is his favorite actress. Yeah. So Angie Dickinson, of course, is the the main, uh, the the female lead in Point Blank, and then also Lee Marvin is a colossally important uh, figure for um, uh, for Thompson, as is the director John Borman. So yeah, I mean, I wonder, you know, is it? Yeah, that's. Am I feeling I'm finally ready to, uh, you know, to uh, to get into territory that's uh, uh, previously occupied by by the great David Thompson? Great. Well, so um, have you guys got questions for Jack or for Jonathan? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wonder if you could kind of uh, extrapolate on like how the, the difference in terms of like the landscape uh, that was now versus back then and, and having that ability to kind of be able to include a little bit more passion with the Nanjari and Kalashnikov story. Wow, th this is, uh, this is uh, uh, okay, this is a, what we call a non-filmic question. And it's about, uh, and you want me to talk about the, just rephrase it. Uh, <laughs> Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Well, actually, the the truth is uh, the, the the period that um, you're you're referring to, uh, when I was in my when, just after I left university, crucially, the Labour Party was not in power. Uh, the uh, it was it was it was the era of Thatcher, um, and that was a period of huge unemployment, but with all the safety nets put in place by previous Labour governments which meant that for a whole load of uh, Oxford graduates like me, it was this wonderful thing where we could leave uh, university, sign on the dole, no chance of getting a job, and live, frankly, as though we were on an MFA program, uh, you know, a, a fully funded MFA program. So that was, uh, uh, that was, uh, it was a very, um, it was a, yeah, it was a very, um, easy way to live at a time when it was incredibly cheap to live in London generally. So, uh, yeah, and times are very, very different now, of course. I thought for a moment you were going to ask me, uh, you know, what I thought of, God, the current state of the Labour Party and that, that kind of thing. 
Oh, who was that question from? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, uh, goodness knows. I mean, it's funny, even given, I mean, I'm struck by the way that even for someone who's, you know, le who owes everything to the Labour Party, uh, as, as, as I and my family do, I sort of think, God, if I hate Corbyn as much as I do, what must the, you know, less sympathetic part of the country think? And actually, as somebody said recently, they love him because, of course, he's like almost a guarantee of a, of a, of a, of a Tory uh, victory. So that's my uh, little take on it. He's so, he's just so awful, this person who's just, has, who's not, you know, he made up his mind about everything and became this sort of Trotskyist with the belief that a world revolution might be just around the corner, especially, you know, if, you know, and he still thinks it is at some level, you know, and then, of course, Britain and America are just imperialist powers to him. It's just an amazingly, it's an amazingly kind of 17-year-old Trotsky, you know, 1970 Trotsky, Trotskyist view of the, what do you think? Oh, uh, well, I think he's an altogether, Sanderson, Sanders is an altogether more sympathetic character. Anyway, a lady behind you had there a, was a question. Woman, yeah. Oh, I'm really, I'm really going to try not to. Uh. I, I, oh, thank you. Thanks. It's nice. I, you know, I, I, I backed into doing it here and there, but I think it really does seem to me that uh, the space has been filled in hmm. by people who've given... Uh, even more of their lives to Bob Dylan than I have. I mean, in many cases, uh, Michael Gray. Uh, you know, there are these phenomenal uh, exegetical tomes, and I and I and so instead, I've kind of nibbled around the margin. I I, um, I wrote about uh, wrote a liner note for an album of uh, covers of Bob Dylan songs in the '80s, and you know, that's my little. My little shred. It's like the Where Eagles Dare of Bob Dylan. It's <laughs> it's, it's where no one else wants to go. <laughs> so um. you know, I, I staked out that territory. Um, but no, I'm really not going to do it anymore. I'm I'm I think I'm writing um, about music uh, less. I think that's that's something I did mm. for me. I'm I'm I, it was great to do it, <laughs> but I I don't think I'll do it again so much. Thanks. More questions. Sure, Jeff. Yeah. Why don't you Why don't you talk about teaching? Yeah. Well, uh, you see, it's very different for me. I mean, in in America, you know, you publish um, you publish a slim album of verse when you're 23 or whatever, and on the basis of that, you um, you can get a teaching job, uh, generally, <laughs> and then so you know, yeah, you start teaching early on, uh, and um, and then by the time you know, and that's that's it, and you know, and then. Uh, <laughs> The support mechanism for writers in America is so huge that you can basically do nothing for the next 20 years, whereas uh, in England it wasn't like that, you know. So I came to teaching very late, um, uh, and really in America on these MFA programs, and I absolutely loved it uh, for a simple reason, I think. Let's say the typical MFA student is, I mean, roughly between about 23 and 30, something like, like that. I mean, I, that's been my experience anyway. And, you know, that is such a great time in your life because you've done your sort of undergraduate work. Um, uh, you've, your brain has been formatted. And then you've just got this inc 
you know, I can remember myself at that age when I was doing my equivalent of an MFA program, I living on the dole in England, and just that incredible receptivity to, to films, music, all of this kind of stuff. It's such a wonderful period in, 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 in anyone's life. And also, that's at the age when you're really possessed by this desire to be a writer. You know, it's just a great thing. And these kids that I was teaching in Iowa and Austin, they were so full of ambition in a really good way, wanting to be great writers, you know. And, okay, so I teach them, but uh, uh, of course the truth is my relationship is entirely vampiric because on the one hand, uh, I just feel so rejuvenated by, by being around uh, people at that stage in their life. And also, crucially, you know, they turn you on to, to things. So it's because it's so, I mean, it's just so essential as you get older to, to have access to, to young people telling you what to not to listen, what to listen to. Because, um, you know, any kind of, any, you know, the worst thing that can happen to you really, if you want to continue having any kind of creative life, is to succumb to a sort of Philip Larkinism, whereby you just lose interest in Where everything. Where all you do is write books about movies you watched when you were <laughs> 12 years old. Yeah. yeah. No. Anyway, what about no. you? And no, TK? I'm just going to I'm just going to extend I'm sorry. I'm just going to extend your your thought which is which is uh, ended up very much where I center in my experience of teaching which is that I'm increasingly dependent on them to not just uh, point me to the, you know, uh, you know, the, the the more interesting music and 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 uh, television or, or books often, yeah. but um, but uh, that they uh, challenge how I think, and and um, that they're they're sort of my best hope for <laughs> for having something um, worth doing, uh, you know, in the next in the next part of my of my writing life is is if I listen as much as I teach, and uh, I I mean I do a different thing. I did I had some experience in MFA programs, but I teach undergraduates, which um, not to set it up as uh, there's one that's, uh, you know, that that's preferential, but I do find that there's something um, super elastic and um, poly kind of um, there's the 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 um, 18 or 19 year olds in a college are uh, self-inventing at, at a very pure level. They're playing, and even when they might end up later being an MFA student, when they're taking my class, at some level, it's sort of in in air quotes, they're, they're playing at everything. Mm -hmm. And that's great, I think that's a great uh, way to approach writing actually as a, in the color, kind of polymorphous perverse uh, stance of, um, you know, maybe I'm a poet, maybe I'm an essayist, maybe I'm not a writer at all. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, and so I try to teach them on that footing where we're, we're in a, a, a laboratory or a playground and, um, and, and that itself is replenishing for me too. And I guess it's one of the many things we have in common that neither of us came through any kind of uh, creative yeah. writing mentorship program like yeah, that. Yeah, uh, right. We're, uh, it's true. I, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, most, most American writers uh, my age, really loosely, um, there, I'm sure there are plenty of exceptions, but almost everyone I know who's my age or, or younger than me does have an MFA. I mean, they, they and I didn't even graduate college. Um, but generally, when he admits that, then he very quickly points out no, he's no, been no, in receipt of three honorary degrees. <laughs> <laughs> in 30 languages, Jeff. Um, but um, I, was a, I, was a, I was too anti-institutional. Uh, I, I took it, I took every, 
aspect of college as a, a personal affront mm -hmm. to my, um, my, my sense of freedom. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, no, I, I cheated myself of all kinds of interesting participations, actually, which I then had to circle around and kind of s invent versions of for myself in my 20s informally. So, you know, I did seek, for instance, uh, the, the mentorship of, of older writers. I found, I tugged on people's sleeves and sort of said, you know, read my drafts and talk to me about what you're doing. So, it, you know, in a way I had to, I had to make up a, a patchwork version of those things uh, for myself. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to make another, you know, I, I don't have a, a counterfactual version of my own coming of age to compare it to, but I, I got through anyway. Um, but, um, you know, I think I was just dumb about it. I didn't know that there were MFA programs, really. I, I was working on an older model where a, a writer runs away from things and yeah. works in a bookshop. I really believed, oh, this is the script, so I'm going to go and participate in that script, but it wasn't it was an elapsed script. <laughs> it was well. It was in the process of lapsing. Yeah. I think yeah. maybe yeah. But I mean, of course, Jonathan didn't need to go to college because uh, you know. He, I mean, it's he's one of the, one of the uh, you know. Stop. Well, no, but you are. The fact Stop. is, you Stop. are. Stop. You Stop. are the most. Not to say you're widely read is to uh, you know, is to understate it. It's just. I mean, your expertise in British women writers of the 1930s <laughs> is legendary, and I, that's not a joke. It's it's true. Uh, but yeah. I'm very weak on Alistair McLean. <laughs> yeah. um, a couple more, and then, yeah, hey. Uh, Barely. I don't know. I'm going to be a paying customer, or maybe they'll give me a ticket. I hope uh, they do uh, that. Uh, but I'm really going to just be a, a, a film goer. When 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 uh, Motherless Brooklyn opens, in uh, I found out just now it's going to be uh, the start of November. Mm. It's been a it's been a non-film for so long, for 20 years that I'm being I'm. It's taking me a lot of work, a lot of effort to accustom myself to the fact that it's going to actually be a film, and so I'm still I'm still trying to believe, and that's partly also because I wasn't involved. I've never read the script, and I wasn't I wasn't. Uh, drawn into the project. I spent one day on the set, which was very uh, charming for me because the the uh, they were they were nearly done with it, and they all seemed uh, really kind of thrilled to meet me and to show me what they were doing. But I, I don't I, you don't learn very much from one day of looking at them make one shot over and over again. Uh, so I don't know. I'll see I'll see what I think. Um, but it's yeah it's I mean it, it'll be an interesting experience. Um, I, I do think that it's lucky, actually, for me that it took so long. Uh, I, I, you know, when when the book came out in 1999, it was optioned immediately um, for Edward Norton, and it was easy to wish that they would make that film right away. And there was a little window where it seemed like they might make it right away, but I think that would have been very imprisoning for me. I'm already too much the guy who wrote Motherless Brooklyn, you know, and that, if that film had come out and, and Garnered any attention whatsoever at that time, it would have, I'd been, st I'd have been stuck, with with that, uh, too too completely. So I like the I like the fate that that, that I've come to here. But I'll tell you in a year what I think. Thanks. We could we could maybe we're, today, yeah. Maybe that's it. Okay. And I'm, I know Jeff will sign books, and I'm, yep, I'll and do it Jonathan too. Jonathan too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Great. Thanks. <laughs>
Thank you, Jennifer. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.